0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Esposito. Y'all ready for this On WCPT 820.
1: Hi, thanks for joining me this Monday, February 19th. Maybe you are out and about, off work for President's Day, if so. Um, you know, raise a cold one for me and uh, those of us here at WCPT who are still uh, plugging away. Lots to talk about today. Let's start with the continuing fallout from the death of Alexei Navalny. Uh, his wife, Yulia no- Navalnaya, put out a statement that uh, was really quite emotional. Um, I have not seen it in translation, only in Russian. So let me tell you a little bit about what she says. She says she's going to continue her husband, Alexei Navalny's work. She wants to live in a free Russia. She wants to build a free Russia. She wants people to stand with her, to share not only her grief and pain, but to share the rage, the fury, the anger, the hatred for those who dare to kill our future. She uh, also vowed to find out exactly who killed her husband and to make sure that person's name and visage became public. Uh, She has also requested from Russia that, um, her husband's body be returned to her. But, um, Russia has said uh, that um, they're not going to return the body for two weeks. They're claiming that they need to do some kind of chemical examination. His wife believes that they've used poison to kill him, and they want to make sure that all traces of the poison are gone before they send his body out. That's Her theory on why they're saying, remember when he was in Germany, he was flew to Germany to be treated when they poisoned him with their nerve agent. They're very famous for using uh, Novichok. Well, she's wondering if they did it again. Um, And they're waiting for the final traces of it to be gone from his body before. They send it along. Adam Kinsinger, I didn't have time to share this with you, but Friday when the news of uh, Navalny's death was first reported, Adam Kinzinger posted a video response to that. I'd like to share that with you now.
2: So as we've all heard, sadly, Alexei Navalny was murdered And he was murdered because Vladimir Putin thinks he can get away with it because he's seeing all this internal strife in the House, I guess, and, and in the Republican Party. And this is what goes to show, this is what happens when we show weakness. Now, Alexei Navalny, terrible, but that also means that Vladimir Putin is getting signals that he can do other things as well. Speaker Johnson should immediately cancel this vacation that the House is on. Bring them back, notice on the floor that they're gonna put the aid bill down. He should put it down, call people back, and pass it in direct response for murdering Navalny. And by the way, if he's not willing to do that, there should be three or four House members, for God's sakes, that are on the Republican side that are willing to vote against every rule until Speaker Johnson puts us on the floor, and he will relent within a week. Where's the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee? What about uh, the head of armed services, chair of Intel? Where are these people? Why aren't they compelling Speaker Johnson to put this on the floor? We are signaling weakness, and it is eventually going to cost American lives.
1: And that's the fear that this is the continued tolerance of Putin, the continued lack of support for Ukraine puts the world at risk. Today, as um, President Biden was about to um, leave um, Delaware, uh, he was speaking to some reporters and he said that he had spoken with Volodymyr Zelensky and um, he wanted the head of Ukraine, to be confident that we're going to get the money to keep the country from being overrun by Russia. And he said, you know, that some people were saying that he had never explained to the American people um, along these lines why NATO is so important. And here's what he said. He said, you know, NATO is critical to our survival. NATO has held. We have never been able to avoid. We've a European conflict, as long as there's NATO where we have allies who are confident and have defended us. Uh, The only time NATO has really come to anybody's aid was the United States after 9-11. What he meant to say was that because of NATO, we have avoided a conflict in Europe and we continue to do so. Now, um, after Marine One landed at the White House, he again spoke to reporters who asked him, about whether or not he was uh, going to be chatting with Speaker of the House Mike Johnson about aid to Ukraine. And he said, I'd be happy to meet with him if he's got anything to say. And he was asked, do you think that Alexei Navalny's blood is on the hands of House Republicans? And he and President Biden said, no, he wouldn't. He wouldn't say it that way. But he says they're making a big mistake by not responding um, and I agree with Adam Kinzinger. The response on the part of Mike Johnson should have been swift. Should have been swift and unequivocal, but that's not the case. That wasn't the case because that isn't what Donald Trump has told him to do. And Donald Trump is calling the shots, not not Mike Johnson. Uh, the president continued to say, um, The way they're walking away from the threat of Russia, the way they're walking away from NATO, the way they're walking away from meeting our obligations. It's just shocking. I mean, they're wild. I've never seen anything like this. He was asked if Navalny's death would make a difference on aid to Ukraine. He says, I hope so, but I'm not sure anything's going to change. He then said he might consider increasing sanctions on Russia because of the death of Alexei Navalny. Liz Cheney was uh, speaking on the network news shows, and uh, she was talking about NATO and its importance. I think it's worth sharing. Listen to this. Uh, He's basically made clear that uh, under a Trump administration, Uh, The United States is unlikely to keep its NATO commitments. And I think that Republicans uh, who understand the importance of the national security situation, who continue to support him, are similarly going to be held to account. You know, when you think about Donald Trump, for example, pledging
3: retribution, um, what Vladimir Putin did to Navalny is what retribution looks like in a country where the leader is not subject to the rule of law. Um, And
1: and I think that we have to take Donald Trump very seriously. We have to take seriously the extent to which, um, you know, you've now got a Putin wing of the Republican Party. Uh, I believe the issue this election cycle is making sure the Putin wing of the Republican Party does not take over the West wing of the White House. The Putin wing, the Putin wing of the party. She wants to make sure the Putin wing of the party doesn't take over the White House. Let's see, who would that be, the Putin wing the party? Oh, wait, oh, wait, that would be Donald Trump. And for the longest time, he had no statements about the uh, death of Navalny. And then when he did, it was again to, I'm not going to, like I said, unless something he says is absolutely critical and you just have to hear it coming out of his mouth, I'm I'm not going to play him. Basically, he said exactly what you think he was going to say. He downplayed Navalny's death, talked about how much smarter and better Putin was than Biden. Same old, same old. Same old, same old. One last thing that I'm going to share with you before we take a break. Once in a while, I share clips with you from the late night television hosts. And, you know, usually they make some political observation, but they do it funny. I don't know. Stephen Colbert on the CBS Late Show seemed a hell of a lot more upset and frustrated than uh, funny. This is real quick, but I think it's worth sharing. This is Stephen Colbert on Donald Trump.
2: I know how numb we've become, but it's not normal. No other candidate for the presidency has ever had to pause his campaign to defend himself in multiple courts. And I would like to point out that in all seven of his cases, no one, no one doubts that he did these things. We're just sitting around patiently waiting to find out if the wheels of justice will grind fast enough for there to be any consequences. And the media is covering it like it's any other political story, like it's all horse race.
1: Stephen Colbert um, channeling some of the stuff we kind of hoped a week ago we'd hear from John Stewart, but that wasn't the case. John Stewart decided that talking um, that um, Trump and Biden were equivalent because they're both old would be a, a good way to open his show. So we're not going to find any salvation there, kids. Um, we are going to take a quick break, and I'm going to try to give you. <laughs> An update on the various Trump trials and not get you too confused. I I swear to you, on the Heartland Signal website, we really ought to have like a bingo card or something to keep this stuff straight. I will um, be right back, and I'll try to make sense of it right after this.
0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, let's see if we can... Make sense of where we stand in the Trump trials. All righty. Uh, you know that um, ruling by Judge Engeron? This was the New York fraud case against his business brought by Letitia James. Uh, he ordered Trump to pay more than $350 million. And um, according to the Washington Post, um, it says here, uh, Trump lawyers are preparing to appeal. Well, that's not a big surprise. Engeron's uh, order that Trump pay more than $350 million plus what the New York Attorney General's office estimates is about $100 million in interest. I don't know. By, you know, um, by my calculation, that's $450 million. By the way, did you see where uh, Elon Musk took a quip? quick trip to visit Donald Trump. There was uh, some speculation that Elon was offering to give Trump the money he needed or maybe at least lend Trump the money he needed to pay some of this stuff off. But nothing has been officially released. But everybody was trying to figure out why would Elon Musk jump in his private jet and go uh, have a sit down with Donald Trump right after this. Anyway, we'll see if that's the case. I'm sure it will come out. So they're going to appeal the Judge Angeron order. Well, that's not a huge surprise. We we knew. I mean, that's that's Donald Trump's whole M.O., isn't it? Appeal, appeal, appeal. Um, not necessarily because you don't feel justice was done, but because it drags out the process. And if he can drag out the process and he can get elected president, whew, at least half of the cases against him are going to disappear overnight. Mm hmm. Okay. um, um, in Georgia, we are still watching the proceedings where Fonnie Willis has to say that because she had a personal relationship with one of the lawyers she hired to work on her prosecution of Donald Trump, um, a relationship that is long over, um, that uh, somehow she's not compromised. So that distraction is uh, still going on. There is no official court date for the Fulton County, Georgia, election interference trial. No official court date. And we're still waiting for the judge to rule on whether or not Fannie Willis somehow must step away from the case. All the legal experts now, yeah, you know, One thing that I learned as a journalist, you can think you know how a judge or a jury is going to rule, but until you actually get the ruling, you don't know. So um, every legal expert who has been watching the Fonnie Willis interrogation unfold, every single one of them has said that there is no reason to take her off this case. There is no reason to force her to recuse. Clearly... There was no her whatever was going on or not going on personally did not affect it. And remember, you have to show that, you know, that not just that, you know, she was dated somebody she shouldn't have dated, but that there has to be like some sort of financial malfeasance. And they haven't shown that. So. No trial in the Georgia case. Most of the most all of the legal experts who've watched the Fonnie Willis testimony say there's absolutely no reason to kick her off this case. We will see what happens. Now, let's see. Let's move. Oh, how much time do I have? <laughs> because, we you know, there's more. We we have we have to take a break at the end of the hour. And there is uh. More to share probably than I have time for. So let's get to it. You know, uh, the D.C. case, Judge Chuckton, this is where Jack Smith went. Remember, he went to the Supreme Court and said, look, this guy is going to go through the entire appeals process, drag things out. This is going to end up before you. So please, would you just decide right now whether or not his claims of immunity are valid? And who knows? They might have. But before um, there was any. Reaction from them, Donald Trump's lawyer said, no, 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 we don't want that. Of course, they don't want that. Delay, delay, delay. That is the Donald Trump strategy. They want to go to um, the appeals court. And after a three-judge panel ruled against them, they want to go to the full court. And then they want to go to the Supreme Court because that they're trying to drag this trial out. This, unlike Georgia, which was election interference brought by the state. This is a federal case. D.C. and Florida are federal cases. If Donald Trump regains the presidency, these cases go away. And that is what he is praying for. These cases go away. He will clean house at the Department of Justice. He will install people like... Um, uh, Robert Hur, you know, the partisan who wrote the report that said, no, Joe Biden doesn't need to be criminally prosecuted. We don't think he did any of this on purpose, but he's old, but he's old. Did you know that he's old and feeble? I think feeble was one of the words he used. So um, Robert Herr uh, taking the bill bar course to try to get uh, Merrick Garland's job. Bill Barr famously, like, wrote a bunch of white papers about how everything Trump was doing was legal and how he could fight for, you know, he could make a case for all of it. And then guess what? Bill Barr was tapped to lead the Department of Justice. Imagine that. Her's not stupid. He doesn't care what Biden thinks of his report. He doesn't care what the media thinks of his report. His report was written To get the attention of Donald Trump. Hey, I'm your guy. You get elected president, man. Put me in the DOJ and I will clean house. So uh, we don't have a trial date for the D.C. case. It was originally supposed to um, go to trial in March. But this whole um, brouhaha about whether or not he is immune from prosecution has to be decided first prosecutors are trying to get things moving now when this three judge panel ruled that Donald Trump had no immunity you know that you know good gosh he was a person and you know people do bad things and they can get charges against them they said if you want to appeal this to the full court of appeals This was a three-judge panel. If you want to appeal this to the full Court of Appeals, you can do that. But if you do that, um, we are not going to stay the trial. In other words, we will let Judge Chuckton start your trial in D.C. while simultaneously while this appeal goes forward and Donald Trump's lawyers now have gone to the Supreme Court to say oh that's not fair that's not fair the pause should the pause should stay please oh please oh please rule on this or 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 say that it's it's not right delay 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 so in the dc case Donald Trump's lawyers have gone to the Supreme Court to argue that it is unfair for the case to continue Until the entire appeals process, whatever that takes, the entire appeals process is done. Uh, The Florida documents case has a tentative trial date of May 20th. um, But there aren't a lot of people who think that that's going to happen because Eileen Cannon has bent over backwards to do pretty much anything Trump wants. And last but not least, the one that we actually are going to see, March 25th. This is the hush money case. These were, this was the first indictment brought against Donald Trump by Alvin Bragg. That he um, made payoffs while he was running for president that were deliberately designed to shut people up so that um, they couldn't tell their stories and make him look bad. March 25th. <sighs> okay. Okay. There you go. There's more I could tell you about what he's paid and what he hasn't paid and what he's supposed to put in escrow, et cetera, and so forth. But you've got the gist of it right there. Let's take a break. We'll be back with more after this.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: I am pleased to be joined by Professor Kent Redfield. Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Illinois at Springfield, an expert on Illinois politics. Kent, welcome back. How are you? Doing just fine.
4: Good to talk to you.
1: Good to talk to you, too. We've got uh, so much to go over. Um, Redistricting is in the news because, and I don't quite understand this, there is apparently a new map in Wisconsin, and uh, it has been approved by everybody. And I read something that I thought was kind of interesting because, you know, what we they have now a Democratic majority on their Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said this map you have before isn't isn't fair. And you have X amount of time to draw a new one. And if you can't get it done, the court will draw a new map. Well, they got a new map drawn and it's apparently been approved by everybody. But I read this morning that the new map still Gives Republicans an edge in Wisconsin politics. So it would. What is that? Ken, let's back up. What's the definition of gerrymandering?
4: <laughs> well, it's drawing a map that creates an an unfair advantage, and that can be. You know, historically, it's they, these were all about race. It was a way to just uh, disenfranchise minority populations. Uh, That pretty much got fixed by uh, both Supreme Court decisions and the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. But we have, if you draw a map that creates an unfair advantage in terms of partisanship, then uh, the court has ruled that that's an issue that they really, you know, it's a political issue and it, you know, we can't really find a standard. And so it's essentially turned back to the state. So,
2: mm-hmm.
4: you know, that's the basics. So
1: when I read this morning that Wisconsin's new map, even though Democrats have agreed to it, it still favors Republicans, isn't that the essence of gerrymandering, a map that isn't neutral, that favors one political party over another. And it kind of seems, Kent, that the only way to get a neutral map would be to have some kind of algorithm or some maybe AI. Maybe this is what AI could do, Kent.
4: <laughs> I'm not sure I'm willing to turn the whole world over to computers. But but yes, I mean, there have been situations in Washington state at one time when they couldn't agree on a map. The state Supreme Court uh, essentially got a master who was a geography professor from the University of Washington who not, knew nothing about politics and drew a map based on kind of, you know, geography, communities of interest, that sort of stuff. And turned out it wasn't all that bad a, a, a map, but, you know, I I don't think that's, you know, that's certainly not going to happen, you know, in Illinois. and And there is an issue with kind of Fairness is in the eyes of the beholder. And so, you know, the fact that certain groups are, uh, you know, of voters might be concentrated in one area or they might be dispersed throughout the state, you know, you can't draw a perfect map that treats everybody fairly. Uh, So, without looking at the map in in Wisconsin, uh, you know, there seems to still be some advantages. you know, for the Republicans, that maybe again, based more on geography or you know the distribution of, say, for instance, minority groups. Uh, but normally, you know, it's you know the the court didn't have an axe to grind. The the legislature worked out a compromise that both sides, you know, agreed to and sent the bill to the governor, uh, who signed it. Uh, that would be you know a better process than way things are working out in Illinois, uh, but you know that that would be much more difficult to get to get to that place in Illinois.
1: Well, tell me, tell me your thoughts on our maps here in Illinois.
4: Oh, they're they're brutal, you know, partisan gerrymanders. There's no question about it. I mean, you know, the state—if you have an election statewide office, fifty-six. Democrat, 44 Republicans, somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, currently, the Democrats have 66% of the seats in the House, in the state legislature, 68% of the seats in the Senate. And the congressional map, uh, that you know, we, the Democrats have 82% uh, of those seats. Uh, there are 14 Democrats and 3 Republicans. uh you know, members of the House of Representatives. So it's a brutal gerrymander designed to, you know, get the maximum uh, advantage to Democrats.
1: I've read something that I think I'd like you to maybe explain to me in a little bit more depth. I've read that when there is no gerrymandering, when maps are considered fairly, when districts are fairly apportioned, that's when it's we are able to elect more middle of the road candidates. Explain that link to me, would you?
4: Well, you're yeah, you when you apportion maps, then uh, in the way that you just described, you tend to get natural competition out of them. Uh, you know, you're going to have some areas that. Uh, where things are, you know, lean very strongly left or right. But, you know, lots of these are going to end up with, you know, with competition and, and some balance and each party, you know, in that, in those districts has a shot. When you're drawing maps to, for partisan advantage, then what you do want to do is squeeze all of the competition out of the map. You want to have a lot of safe seats for your party. And safe seats for the other party, and then very as few competitive districts as possible. You just, you know, you're trying to create a sure thing, and so you want to get, you know, you you want to get a lot, maximize your safe seats, pack all of your opponents into as few districts as possible, and squeeze the competition out, and and so that. You know that when you have competition, then people have to, you know, appeal to the middle. When you don't have competition, then in the general election, then it's in the primary, and you know, and everybody is running to the extremes because you know that's where the, uh, you know, the, the the people that are partisans for one party or another, you know, that's where they're trying to have an impact. So you end up with more extreme candidates and less competition when you get to the general.
1: When you have um, gerrymandering, you have partisan control of the state legislature or your local municipalities. Um, But what do you think about electing judges? We elect judges around here, um, you know, Illinois and Wisconsin, we elect judges who are always placed in the interesting uh, position of having to campaign and being able to say very little as, as they campaign. I mean, we like to think of uh, judges as being above it all. But even when we look at our Supreme Court, even applying, even putting somebody in a job for life where, at least in theory, they would, they would no longer be affected by politics or, or the winds of political opinion. And yet we see that's not the case. So is it simply more realistic to just say, you know what? We're going to vote for these judges and they're going to tell us going in if they're a Republican or a Democrat and we're at least going to know where they stand. Or, this, or do we try to go with this ideal where, you know, judges aren't Republican or Democrat. They're above it all. They are these lofty people who think only in terms of the Constitution and the greater good.
4: Well, you know, we appoint judges nationally. Uh, you know, we have the last set of judges that have come on the court uh, under President Trump were, you know, recruited and. You know, put forward by a very organized campaign to try and find people that were ideologically conservative and get them on the bench. So, you know, you can, you know, when you're appointing judges and confirming them in the legislature, certainly you can get, you know, partisan bias. Uh, you know, we have some states, Missouri, for instance, where you kind of have a panel that recommends judges to, you know, to the governor who makes choices. Um, So it's hard to wring, you know, not only partisan politics, but ideology out of this. And, you know, when we do elect judges, what the courts have held is that, uh, you know, judges represent the law, they don't represent people, therefore, you know, you don't have to have one man, one vote. You know, in Illinois, Cook County gets three judges uh, because that's what the state constitution says. And then we get four judges that are elected from districts uh, that are created you know, outside of Cook County, uh, but they don't have to be equal in population. And what we found in 2022, when it looked like the Democrats were in danger of losing control of the supreme court Um, they redrew those four districts outside of cook county instead of four districts leaning republican we got two that lean republican one competitive one that leans democrat and that meant democrats just had to win one and they keep their majority on the court democrats won both of them and now you know they have a five uh, to two majority. That doesn't mean the people on the court are partisans, but you know it is. You know the Democrats did a gerrymander. Essentially, they try they redrew those those down those districts outside of Cook County uh, to give them put them in a position where they could retain. Uh, you know, control of the court in terms of people elected as Democrats or Republicans. So even in the the situation of elections, uh, you know, you can still get gerrymandering because if you don't have to have one person, one vote, uh, you know, you can have bias or you can put Democratic counties together and Republican counties together and do those those kinds of things.
1: Hmm. We have a lot more to talk about. Um, I'm joined by Professor Kent Redfield, who is a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Illinois Springfield. We are going to take a break and be back with more right after this.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: I'm joined by a political science professor emeritus, Kent Redfield. He's from the University of Illinois at Springfield. We have been talking about gerrymandering, but, Kent, I'd also like to talk about the Democratic National Convention. Uh, It is coming to Chicago this August. Um, What will you be watching?
4: Um, I'm going to be watching, you know, as we go through the primary season, uh, you know, is you know, the presumptive nominee, President Biden, you know, is, does he remain viable? And, you know, is it a, you know, is he going to get the, you know, get on a smooth path to nomination or, you know, is is there going to become a point where the Democrats start thinking about, you know, do we need another nominee? And that's, you know, that's going to make the you know, all the difference when they get to Chicago. Either, you know, he'll have delegates all lined up and, uh, you know, and or we could have, you know, some kind of, you know, health event, some kind of, you know, some reason he would step down as a nominee, then, you know, you would have a real scramble in terms of, uh, you know, who it, who, the, was, who the people were, you know, potential nominees are and, you know, what would happen. So it could be very boring or it could be really exciting.
1: <laughs> um, Kent, I have a question about that, because President Biden said um, a couple of months ago, at least now, that um, he felt that he was definitely the best candidate to go up against Donald Trump which led some people to believe that if for some reason, again, probably medical event, if Donald Trump is not the Republican nominee, that maybe just maybe under those circumstances, uh, Joe Biden would step aside. But then I've talked to people about it and they say, oh, no, no, it's too late. It's too late in the process. Um, no, There's no way to change horses now. It just it just couldn't happen. But are they telling me that? Just because of momentum, or are there, uh, would there be some legal or logistical reason? I mean, let's face it. If I mean, if 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 Joe Biden died tomorrow, he wouldn't be the nominee. So there must be some <laughs> way. You know, I don't understand yes. the mechanics of this. Can you
4: walk me through it? Well, I, yes, I can try. You know, we're talking <laughs> about a, with me. A, that's a all you can do,
1: Kent, is try. <laughs>
4: Well, and on my part also, the the we're talking about a political party, so you know this is not a unit of of a governmental unit. The party has rules, mechanisms. Each state has rules in terms of you know how their elections are run. But you know if we've already had a primary, someone is a delegate. Uh, you know, pledged to Biden. Biden withdraws or you know it cannot serve then that person goes to the convention uh and essentially becomes a free agent you know they're they're learning at you know thousand people i think is the number uh in that hall that have everyone has a vote and so you know, you would end up releasing delegates that had already been chosen. Then, you know, we saw in COVID where you know you can stop the process, you can delay filing, you can open up, you know, put more have put, pe- put more people on the ballot. You know, you could change the the uh, process in in the states where you hadn't had primaries, and you would at least get some sense of. Governor Newsom is a good candidate or a bad candidate. Mm -hmm. Uh, The governor of Wisconsin, uh, winner is, uh, I'm sorry. uh, Evers. Michigan is, yeah, Evers. They are winner. Gretchen Wood. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, J.B. Pritzker has certainly uh, been giving some indication that, you know, he thinks that he's got, you know, could have some presence on the national stage. So, you know, you... You, you will, you could start the process over on where you had not had primaries. If if the candidate's no longer on the ballot anymore, and uh, but you would probably end up with uh, an inability to get, you know, a selective nominee on the first ballot. Then, depending on the rules they adopt, that could make everybody a pre-agent, when you went to the second ballot. So, you know, the, the laws are written so that once the party not get nominate somebody for president, that person gets put on the general election ballot, but the democratic party or the Republican party has a lot of leeway if, to change the rules. If things go south, president Trump, former president Trump gets indicted, uh, and withdraws or, you know, starts losing primaries, uh, you know, you could end up with a situation on the Republicans where they don't have enough to, you know, candidate doesn't have enough to get, you know, to, to win on the first ballot. And so, you know, this is up to the party, which is a, you know, an organization. It's not a unit of government that, you know, has laws or is governed by the you know federal or a state constitution, so there's you know, yeah, the people that want Joe Biden to be renominated or or you know they want you to you know they're saying okay, we're you know that we we can't go back we're you know there's no stopping at this point, but you know if he withdraws or is forced to withdraw, then you know we start a whole new ball game uh, when um, I believe Eagleton... Uh, resigned as vice president uh, when, uh, uh, boy, running against Reagan. I'm, I'm, my being an old person's affecting me this afternoon. You know, <laughs> well, that was a Eagleton long time stepped, ago. Yeah, when Eagleton stepped down after the convention, then not the convention, but the Democratic National Committee chose a new running mate for uh, uh you know, Michael Bacallus, I believe it was, and so, or not bacallus Dukakis, uh, Dukakis, Michael Dukakis. Well, that so, was McGovern. You know, the, well, it doesn't. Yeah. So the seventy-two. The part,
1: Paul says he yeah. looked it up in seventy-two. It was McGovern. McGovern. But so, regardless, I I, I understand yeah. the point you're trying to make. Yeah. One question I have, though, you said that these um d- uh, that these Committees, the RNC, the DNC, that they have rules that it's not necessarily laws, but there's rules that they operate by. But does the head of the RNC have um, have the ability like with an executive action? I'm thinking back to when Arana McDaniel said that the Republican Party wasn't going to have a platform and it wasn't going to have a platform because basically whatever Donald Trump said or thought or wanted was going to the party was going to be right behind him. It I don't know the inner workings, but it kind of seemed to me that she just made that decision on her own and announced it. So does somebody like that or, uh, you know, Jamie Harris with the DNC, do they have a lot of power to decide how things go?
4: The, the, that was, how that decision was made, it was ratified by the convention. They adopted the rules and the mechanics. And the convention, you know, they will start off by adopting rules that they have they, on how they're going to conduct business. And they can amend them. They can change them. So it's really, you know, when you're in the convention, then you're dealing with the will of the majority, you know, obviously influenced by the politics and the power that exists within the, within the convention. Once you get the convention, picks a nominee and adjourns, then the power shifts to the nat- two national committees, and they... And like in the case with Eagleton, you know, they were they had the authority to, uh, you know, select. Uh, I think it was Sar- Sergeant Shriver. I mean, you know, uh, obviously the presidential nominees had to, you know, was agreeing <laughs> to this, but officially they, you know, they had the power to do it. So, yes, if if for one reason or another, either one of the nominees after the conventions are over, if they. If they cannot run, then the two, one of the national committee involved, then would make the replacement, and then that becomes the choice of the party, and then, you know, the county clerk of Cook County, in making up the general election ballot, would write in, the you know, would put in the name of the party's nominee, which... You know, might not have been the person nominated by the convention uh, since that person died, was incapacitated withdrew, and the National Committee selected the nominee. But, you know, the party is su- supplying the name through their process, and the county clerk, you know, the Illinois law requires, you know, the county clerk to put the nominee of the political party on the ballot.
1: I have a... I have a question um, that is completely tangential to our discussion. Um, You know, Kent, you and I are of a certain demographic and we still are very lively and we have lots of brain cells and I think they work remarkably well. Uh, Joe Biden is only three years older than Donald Trump. Donald Trump makes a lot more mistakes I mean, he keeps talking about how he's running against Obama, for God's sake. He thought um, Nikki Haley was Nancy Pelosi. He he sometimes, you know, starts um, it's like his mouth doesn't work. He starts not being able to say words. And yet all we hear about is, oh, my God, voters think Joe Biden is old and you don't. At least in the mainstream media, I'm not reading articles day after day after day about Donald Trump being too old and addled to run for president. Why do you think that is? Why is that difference
4: there? Well, part of it is, you know, Donald Trump is not, does not present himself a whole lot differently than he did when he was, you know, running in 2016 or when he was a, you know, citizen Trump, you know, running The Apprentice. He's always had a very blustery, erratic kind of style. And, you know, those early campaigns in 2016, you know, he likes to get in front of an audience and just, you know, do drifts on this, that, or the other thing. He's kind of, you know, over time he's normalized his behavior. Uh, on the other hand, you know, Joe Biden came out of, you know, senator, president, ran as kind of I'm the adult in the room and I'm, you know, the person that is going to bring back, you know, normalcy, reassurance. And so when people see, you know, the fact that uh, he forgets things, just like I demonstrated earlier trying to (laughs) talk about Thomas Eagleton, you know, then people You know, people see that and they say, well, you know, Biden has changed. Well, you know, unless you're a qualified cognitive psychologist and are going to do a battery of tests, uh, you know, you really can't draw those kind of conclusions about what a person understands or their ability to make decisions. But, you know, the way that he is, you know, the, the way that he's, you know, different kinds of episodes of behavior, and, you know, and then gaps have been, uh, you know, interpreted as uh, being signs of cognitive decline, and that's fit into this, you know, the narrative that uh, is being pushed (laughs) by the Republicans, whereas Trump is kind of normalized, you know, well, you know, that's just Trump. He's all over the place, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that's so, you know, and when you get narrative stuck into social media, into the way that we communicate these days, you know, it's very hard to dislodge you when 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 people accept kind of a, a broad narrative about what's reality out there.
1: Professor Kent Redfield, thank you so much for. Uh for uh, joining us today and talking political science with us. I appreciate it. Thank you.
4: Oh, certainly. It's good to talk to you.
1: We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this.
0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Esposito You for this? On WCPT 820.
1: In our continuing effort to uh, speak to pretty much... All the all the members of the Chicago City Council. Um, We are inviting uh, Alderman Anthony Beal to join us today. Anthony represents the ninth ward in Chicago, and we have had him on the radio before, but not for a long time. Why did we wait so long, Anthony, to do this again? (laughs)
5: Well, when you call I come. So I don't know if you called in a while.
1: <laughs> well, you know, um men say that sometimes, but it isn't always true. But I promise you, I will be calling more often going forward. I really um en- enjoyed it when we uh when we spoke last time, and there's so much going on right now. Uh, gosh, I hardly know uh, where to begin. Okay, you know, there is a vote coming up uh, relatively soon. And one of the uh, big measures is the Bring Chicago Home Ordinance. For people who are are not familiar with this or haven't heard my conversations with uh, Greg Hines from Crane Chicago Business, it is referred to as the mansion tax. Whenever you buy a piece of real estate and the ownership gets transferred, uh, there is a tax on that. And going forward, if this measure passes, that transfer tax on on sales of a million dollars or more is going to go up the idea being that that money will be taken to um, fund services and support for the unhoused. How do you feel about the Bring Chicago Home Ordinance?
5: Well, I'm definitely opposed to the Bring Chicago Home Ordinance. I voted against it, and I hope every Chicagoan uh, that listens to my voice votes against it as well, Uh, because it's not a mansion tax. You know, I look at it as a migrant tax. Uh, because, you know, the money has not been identified on what it's going to be spent on. Basically, we have a broad brush where they're saying it's going to go towards homelessness. It's going to go towards this. But there has not been a concrete plan in writing on what the money is going to go towards. You and know, so it's really interesting
1: I- because last week I had uh, Jesse Fuentes, older older person, Jesse Fuentes on. And I specifically asked her that. I said, OK, Is there a document? Is there um, something that's been written up that says, this is the amount of money we think we're going to raise, and exactly this is where it's going to go, and here's the person who's going to be supervising it? And her answer to me was, well, we'll do that after the ordinance passes. And I took that to mean that they that she didn't feel that it was a good use of time to do all that work until they knew for sure this was going to be on the books. But I thought that that was that surprised me a little, I have to say.
5: Well, it shouldn't surprise you, because everything that this administration has been passing uh, doesn't have a concrete plan behind it. It's all. You know the gut feeling stuff that we're passing, and it's not being passed because we've done thorough analysis on how this is going to affect the uh, city of Chicago. Let's go back to the tip wage ordinance. I asked, uh, you know, had we done a thorough analysis, uh, research on the tip wage before it passed, and the answer was no. And I, and they said we'll figure it out afterwards. So we're we're hurting the city. We're putting businesses out of business after we're recovering. We're trying to bring people back into the fold, trying to get people back downtown, trying to get businesses back open. And we're passing all these regressive taxes that's making it harder for businesses to rebound. And so that's why I'm opposed to it, because there's no concrete plan for anything that is being passed out of the city council right now. And I'm just really afraid on the direction that the city of Chicago is headed.
1: There have been some complaints from some wards that um, they're worried that all, you know, migrants are getting all this attention and this this measure is going to be funding, you know, services for the unhoused. But what about the regular folks um, who have low income folks who live mm-hmm. in maybe neighborhoods that fight with more unemployment and more crime? Um, some people have have had have offered that they feel overlooked and i know that when when there was a vote early on in the johnson administration about funding for migrants there were a lot of of older people who stood up and very passionately spoke and said look i'm going to vote for this because you know this this needs to happen but you know the people of my ward have been waiting such a long time for services and different kinds of, of funding to come their way, mm-hmm. and they're still mm-hmm. waiting. Is that how you think the people of your ward feel?
5: Well, that's exactly why I voted against it, and that was part of my speech uh, you know, on the floor, is that you know, I, had, I had a resident who came into my office who had a letter from 2019 where she had been waiting on a new furnace, and they said that they still hadn't had enough money put into the, the budget to you know, really service the backlog of people who are looking for furnaces, hot water heaters, new roofs, new back porches, and things like that, because those funds are limited. But we can find over $500 million to fund migrants coming into the city who have never paid taxes, have never contributed to anything in the city of Chicago, and they're getting more resources than the people who have paid taxes their entire life. And And, you know, it's really... Uh, doing a disservice to the people who are here. Now, I do have a bleeding heart for people who are, um, you know, trying to better themselves. But at the same time, the majority of the migrants that are coming to Chicago are not asylum seekers. OK, basically, they're illegal immigrants coming across the border uh, every single day. And so let's, we well, most need to call of the it Venezuelans
1: that have been dropped off by the buses, have been, and because I've talked to a lot of immigration lawyers, the the Venezuelans who have been dropped off by the buses that come from, from Texas, they actually are, they are actually part of the legal process. They're not just mm-hmm. people who walked across the border and got dumped in Chicago. And I'm not saying that I object, because, you know, I mean, when you've got people sleeping at O'Hare and on the floor at police stations, that's a problem that needs to be addressed ASAP I just understand people's frustration with, gosh, you know, you were able to move on this so quickly, and yet it feels like everything in our ward moves so slowly.
5: Right, and, and, you know, that's one of the biggest frustrations that we have every single day. Uh, And so I'm going to continue to fight the good fight for the people of this city of Chicago. But, you know, Joan, we also have to realize, you know, and I said this on the floor just last week, that if we are providing education, health care, housing, three meals a day, all these amenities, and we're going to give you $9,000 vouchers to pay for rent to get you on your feet, who would not come to Chicago? Who wouldn't come? And so we have to quit laying out the red carpet for people who are you know coming to Chicago because we, cannot, we can't afford it. We can't afford this going forward. Well, when you're and put phones, on a
1: bus yeah. and not even told where you're going, I don't think that's exactly coming here on a red carpet. And part of the problem with the Venezuelans, as you well know, is that there was no um there was no Venezuelan culture, no Venezuelan infrastructure, because, you know, we took. Right. 30,000 people from Ukraine, and you've never heard uh, a word of complaint or, you know, they're Absolutely. not uh, sitting on the street corners because we have a Ukrainian community. And they absorbed them and they brought them into their homes and they brought them into their um, community mm-hmm. centers and, the, and their churches. But that kind of that kind of framework didn't exist for the Venezuelans. Um, so I, I understand that we had to do a lot of this. What would you like to see if I give you I give you a magic wish right now and you can uh, go to the city council and get some policy or program voted on that you think would benefit the people of your ward? What would that be? What would that look like?
5: Well, well, again, if we're appropriating 500 million dollars. Appropriate five hundred million dollars for communities like mine, where I get thirty to forty million dollars a month, because that's what we're spending on the migrant crisis between thirty and forty million. If I had thirty to forty million in my ward within two years, I guarantee you my ward will transform and my ward will look just like every other thriving ward in every other thriving community here in the city of Chicago. So you know those kind of resources, you can flip the switch. And you can turn our economy around. I can turn my housing stock around. I can turn uh, the lack of uh, um, um, medical uh, uh, issues in my ward. I can turn that around. I can turn around the food deserts that are plaguing our community. We can turn that around. So there's so many different angles that we can turn around. The education system, I can turn that around. With that kind of money, with that kind of infusion of funds, Joan, I could transform the entire ward in a short short period of time if I had those kind of resources.
1: Well, you and I both know that the Bring Chicago Home supporters have not put together the plan for how the money is going to be spent. Is it possible that with enough negotiation and or pressure that some of this money could be allocated to wards that have a need
5: for it? Well, it could, uh, but when we tried to sit down and negotiate, uh, there was no appetite to negotiate on the other side. They felt, we have the vote, we're in charge now, so we're going to roll with this and we're going to run it through. It was just like when I tried to put the the ordinance on the ballot about, does Chicago want to remain a sanctuary city? If it was good enough to put Bring Chicago Home on the ballot for the city of Chicago, why wasn't it good enough to put the sanctuary city question on the ballot if we want to remain a sanctuary city? So we can't talk out of both sides of our neck when we're talking about we want transparency and we want the people to speak. So that's why I'm asking the people of the city of Chicago to speak loud and proud and reject this bring home Chicago because it's going to have an adverse effect on the entire city. It's not a mansion tax. I look at it as a migrant tax without a plan. And we've seen what happens now when we had the migrants coming into the city without a plan. And now they want to raise an additional $100 million on top of the $500 million that we've already allocated. That money is just, you might as well take it out back and burn it in a, in a, in a barrel. And so there's no plan to end of these things. So we need to stop it. We need to stop it now. We need to come up with a plan. And if we come up with a comprehensive plan that's going to help the least of these as well as help the people in my community that have been paying taxes their entire life, then let's let's have that discussion. I'm not opposed to it, but let's have that discussion.
1: Speaking of that, let's let's take a, a step back. Uh, Mayor Johnson uh, ran as a progressive. There are certainly um, progressives in the Chicago City Council that have. Uh, supported him. Um, do you feel that there is communication? Do you feel that there is cross pollination, and that the that this progressive wing that does seem to be leading uh, the politics, the policies, the charge right now, do they care, and are they willing to have conversations with? those who who do not identify as being part of the progressive agenda? Are those conversations taking place? Um, And is there anybody that you feel on the progressive uh, group that you can talk to?
5: Well, let me just say, I've tried to reach out and I've tried to uh, bring a different voice, uh, you know, to to the progressive socialist side of it. uh, And there's been a lot of resistance. Um, because they feel that we're in power now, you know we have the mayor's seat, we have automatic seats, we're in control, and they, they're just going to roll with that agenda without thoroughly doing research that they need to do. Now, let me just say this. You know, you know I wasn't a big fan of uh, uh, Mayor Lightford as well.
1: Yeah, you, two, you two were never like besties.
5: But, but I will tell you, when she came in, she had a progressive agenda as well you know, she came in saying that she was going to uh, do the tip wage piece. She promised that she would bring Chicago home and she said she would do a couple other things, but, she was at least smart enough to do a thorough research and do thorough background on how this would have an effect, whether for or against the people of the city of Chicago. And those policies had a negative effect based on the findings that they, that, you know, they looked at. And so that's why she never passed these same items. And some of the same aldermen who held up these issues for all, uh, for Mayor lifer are the same ones now voting for it because. Uh, Mayor Johnson is in power. And so we have to put the pressure on some of these aldermen who flip-flop with the wind because of whoever's in power. We have to do what's right, you know. And I'm not saying that, you know, the mayor is totally wrong, but he's not always totally right either. And so if we sit down and work these issues out, we can come together with something that works. When you look at what happened with the whole um, um, Israeli um, ceasefire resolution, you know. The God, If we had just sat down and added three lines to that resolution, it would have passed 49 to nothing, 50 to what? nothing. Tell but me then, the
1: three lines.
5: The three lines were uh, if we go ahead and, and add um, uh, to release the, the prisoners, that was one. And the second one was um, uh, immediate ceasefire, number two, and then, uh, you know, to bring aid in to uh, the people of Palestine. It was three simple questions, and, and, and I'm sorry, and, and also um, condemn Hamas, okay? And we couldn't get those items put into that resolution to condemn Hamas, to you know release the hostages. And, you know, if you can't get simple stuff like that in, that's why the resolution passed 23 to 23, and the mayor had to be the deciding vote. So we, we divided our city instead of bringing it together in mm-hmm. a few simple lines. And, you know, and everybody would have been on board with it. And we tried to get those other issues online. All of them still well, okay. were seen what was
1: the opposition
4: to,
1: to saying, if I understand you, it was release the hostages, um, Hamas did a terrible thing, um, and everybody should stop fighting. Um, mm-hmm. What was the opposition to those?
5: Again, we're in charge and we, we're going to pass what we want to pass. We're not going to negotiate. I mean, if you talk to Alderman Silverstein, she tried tirelessly to get those other those simple lines in that resolution and we couldn't get it. That just made sense you know but instead of bringing people together we divided our city even more so than it is now and now you see people spray painting stuff up north you see people you know breaking into uh buildings that are owned by you know the Jewish community and so you know i i just thought it was a perfect opportunity to bring everybody together so no there's not a will that i see to bring people together however if we can get 26 aldermen to finally step up and say you know what we're not going to pass these progressive socialist agenda unless you all sit down and work with us. That's the only way it's going to stop. We have to force them to the table. And until we get there, we're going to continue to see bad policies put in the city of Chicago.
1: One um, one other issue that's been in the news a lot lately is a shot spotter. This is the mm-hmm. technology for our listeners that is supposed to, with the microphones and sensors around uh, the city, particularly on the south and west side, is supposed to hear gunshots and be able to send officers without having to wait for somebody to call 911 and whatever delays Mm -hmm. that uh, entails. One of the things that Brandon Johnson ran on was getting rid of ShotSpotter, um, which is something that he announced that he was not gonna renew the contract. It was supposed to expire, I think, the end of this week. Uh, but he wanted to uh, continue it uh, through the summer, uh, and he said it was so that the police could transition. Many people felt that it was he, he wanted to keep it through the Democratic National Convention, which sort of mm-hmm. undercut his whole his whole argument. And now there's the um, announcement that there has been a brief uh, contract extension signed with the company that will take Shot Spotter up to uh september of 2024 what are your mm-hmm. thoughts on shot spotter are you for it against it don't have any opinion on it what
5: well i'm a huge huge advocate for a shot spotter uh my, my community was one of the very first communities that received ShotSpotter, spotter and uh you know what's happening out you know communities like mine have historically heard gunfire day in and day out so there's a huge apathy about not even calling the police because we they hear it so often. And so with ShotSpotter, it can pick up a gunshot within 10 feet of where it came from. And then the cameras that we have in place automatically shift to the area. So maybe we can catch the people running from that particular area or getting in a car and identify that car uh, from that particular area. Now, let me just say what the other side is not telling you about ShotSpotter. If people are not calling the police, ShotSpotter can be a life-saving tool, which it, it has shown to... That. The police respond to those shots. If somebody needs first aid, are you going to wait 15, 20 minutes for somebody to call 911 saying, I, I heard gunshots, but I don't know where they came from? Or we're going to rely on technology that can tell you within 10 feet where that gunshot came from. The police can get there in an expedite, expedited manner. And then if somebody is injured, they can perform life saving uh, techniques right there on the spot. And so they're not telling you that. And also, Jones, Shotspotter has been saying the city of Chicago has been collecting false data when it came to Shotspotter. So they've been creating this false narrative that it doesn't work and it's not effective. But under this new agreement that they just struck to keep it on until the convention is over, they agreed to finally record the data as it's supposed to be uh, collected and and put out. So you're going to see a huge flip that Shotspotter is working, it's working well, and it's doing what it is supposed to do. So, that, you know, that's why I'm a huge advocate for it. And, you know, you know a lot of times when we campaign, you know, a lot of people say things that's when they're campaigning. But it's very hard to govern. And that's, what's, well, that's what you see happening right now. We're having a problem governing because we're, we're trying to fulfill the campaign promises that don't make sense. Once you get in office, you look at the data and say it doesn't make sense to do this because it's going to hurt the people of Chicago. So we have to stop pandering to the 17% of the 33% that voted. Okay, in the last election, because that's who uh, is running the city of Chicago. The 17% of the 33% that voted and they are bad policies, and then you're going to continue to see this shift unless we stop it. And so, ShotSpotter is a great tool. It works. We need to keep it. Uh, and again, uh, you know, that nobody has talked to any of the commanders in these districts and asked them, how do you like ShotSpotter? Does it work for you? Look at our own police superintendent that was handpicked by this administration. He's a huge supporter of ShotSpotter. So we're not even listening to the person that we are charged. with reducing crime in the city of Chicago. We're saying we're going to do away with it, regardless of the person that I just put in place to make the decisions to make our community safer. So it doesn't make sense, Joan. The
1: one argument, and I—I I don't know uh, if you have heard this or not. The the argument that I heard um, there were well, first of all, there were some accusations that maybe the sh- that the data was being manipulated to make Shot Spotter look more effective than it was. I don't know about that. Um, But there were people who said that the people of their ward did not want uh, you know, when, when it might be fireworks, when it might be a car backfiring, did not want peop, uh, police, you know, basically roaring into their neighborhood, guns drawn, ready for some kind of confrontation, um, when it was a perfectly innocent occurrence because they felt that was a recipe for disaster. Has Have you heard that from the people in your ward?
5: No, I have not heard the sky is falling Uh, theory that you just articulated because that's exactly what that is. You know, I mean, we all know the 4th of July you have fireworks. We all know that uh, New Year's Eve, people are shooting in the air. And, you know, so they're not going to respond to those kind of things. And it knows the difference between a car backfiring. It knows the difference between an M80 and a firecracker and things like that. And so, you know, the technology is evolving and getting better and better every single day. But I'm not going to buy into the sky is falling uh, theory that they're trying to put out there.
1: Do you think uh, that if um, if you say that there's going to be good data collection now, do you think there's a chance that um, at the end of uh, this new contract extension in September, the mayor says, you know, guys, uh, the data is pretty clear that this helps, this works. Let's let's keep it.
5: Well, I would hope that's the case. And that's what I'm really hoping for. And I'm glad the shot spotter, uh, you know, held the administration's feet to the fire. Uh, you know, demanding that the data be collected uh, correctly and put out correctly so we can make a sound decision whether it works or not.
1: Yeah, Thank you so much, Anthony Beal, uh, Ninth Ward Alderman, uh, for joining us. Always, always fun to talk to you, and it will not be such a long time before you <laughs> uh, are back not. here.
5: All right, let's make it happen. Thank you so okay. much. I appreciate you.
1: We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with David Hochberg right after this.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: I want to make sure that you have our call in number 773 763 9278. 773 763 9278. We are going to spend the next hour talking to David Hochberg, and he and I have things to talk about, but I know he is always very generous with his time and willing to answer your questions about refinancing or mortgages or credit enhancement or credit scores. So um, I will be keeping a close eye on the text line. If you have a question for David, uh, please feel free to text it or uh, call in and we will put you on the air. David, how are you doing?
6: I'm great. Happy Monday, Happy President's Day.
1: Happy President's Day to you too. Um, by the way, I know that one of the things that um, you wanted to make sure we talked about today was the vest vestathon um on thursday yeah. i'm on thursday i have matt o'shea on <laughs> so you know one of the things i'm um, he's going to talk about too not that we can't promote it twice
6: yes good alderman uh, of the 19th ward matt o'shea he's been my partner in crime on this endeavor for the least at least the past five six years, he um, brought it to my attention that the men and women of the Chicago Police Department have to purchase their own replacement bulletproof vests, which uh, on average cost about five hundred bucks. They get them when they graduate the academy, and due to wear and tear, different body styles, different uh, you know, cold in the winter, hot in the summer, sweat, and all that good stuff, the material in the bulletproof vest. Uh, breaks down and they need to be replaced per the manufacturer every five years in order for it to be at its peak maximum efficiency. So what we did was I couldn't believe that the city of Chicago doesn't uh, purchase bulletproof vests for the officers of the Chicago Police Department. So I teamed up with Matt like I said, about five, six years ago, and we hold a um a vest-a-thon, as a as a light, I like to call it. I've got a radio show on WGN Saturdays, and we uh, dedicate the entire three-hour show to raise awareness and funds so the Chicago Police Memorial Foundation, which purchases these vests, can redirect the money to other more important areas, like taking care of families of uh, injured and those officers that gave the ultimate sacrifice lost their lives in the line. Of duty, uh, protecting all of us in the Chicago, in, in the city of Chicago, and all the uh, listeners in the Chicagoland area that step inside the 606 zip code, they're protected by the men and women of the Chicago Police Department. So, um, your listeners could go to cpdvest.com dot to uh, donate whatever they can. Um, we've, we've raised over two hundred thousand dollars each of the last. Five years, um, so we're excited to do it again, and just reaching out for support from everyone in the Chicago area.
1: Um, and you know, I found out. Do you remember in the Tribune uh, when uh, they used to do the uh, the Tower Ticker? I don't know if you're old enough to remember that. Uh, the no, it Uh It was the Tower Ticker, and it was done. <clears throat> It was written by a man who has since passed away, and I am desperately um, uh, trying to. And, and Phil Rosenthal took it over, but he didn't start it. Um, and I'm 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 completely blanking on the man who started it. But back when bulletproof vests first were a thing, uh, that's when I realized that the police didn't get them issued as a, as a power as as part of their. Uh, as a part of their uniform, that they had to buy them themselves. So, I mean, um, um, the the effort to help them and and buy these vests for them has been going on as long as these darn vests have been available.
3: Yeah,
6: we but we just brought it to the awareness, and like I said, I got to show on another station. Um, I was over at uh, WLS when we started this, and then I just brought it over to WGN. And like I said, it's it's they are given. Police vests when they graduate the academy. Pretty much every single um, law enforcement agency around the city of Chicago and throughout the United States supplies replacement vests for all of their officers. Okay, Aaron uh, Gold. Aaron, Aaron Gold,
1: Gold was the. Okay. Ta- he, uh, lots of people have r- wrote the Tower Ticker, <clears throat> but Aaron Gold, when he took it over, did this. Oh my God! Did you know that you know they had to buy their own vests, and he raised a ton of money. I'm sorry. Yeah. Had, well, I had take,
6: a- I'm taking the baton. No, no. That listen. I'll take whatever history we, we we get. I was not aware of that, and I'm glad Phil Rosenthal also you know took up the cause. I'll reach out to Phil. But listen, we're just we're just looking to raise enough funds to buy 400 vests. Okay, I think there's 20,000 police officers in the city of Chicago, and those numbers are down from where they should be. And, again, the the vests get cycled out um, every year. Uh, a, a certain population become, um, you know, five years old and, and need to be replaced, and some officers have the money and some officers don't. So, um, you know, the city of Chicago – He's uh, got money for all these other projects, but you know they don't take care of the police officers in the city of Chicago to buy them replacement bulletproof vests, which I just think is a travesty. It's disgusting. And any way we can to raise funds and awareness to um, support the men and women that. To protect us, right? Listen, you could be from Naperville, okay? You could be from downstate Illinois. Once you cross into the 606 zip code, you've got the Chicago Police Department watching your back, right? Mm-hmm. So they got our back. We should have their back. You land at O'Hara Midway. You're going out of town. Most of the listening audience, if you leave on a plane, right, uh, you're going to leave from one of the major airports unless you got a private plane at one of the surrounding airports. You know, lucky you, but 99% of the listeners out there that, that want to travel to another city by Plane are that that don't go to Rockford are going to go to uh, Midway or O'Hare. Okay, and when you land in the Midway and O'Hare, no matter what suburb you're from, the Chicago PD is there to protect you against whatever challenges are out there. And um, it's just it it's been a it's been a um, a charity that that is near and dear to my heart. I I, I support whenever I see. A police officer in Chicago, I always stop and thank them for their service. I shake their hands, uh, and uh, I say, I appreciate what you do, because not too many people recognize them, and they're always getting, um, you know, defecated on, if you will. I'd like to use a different word, but I can't on the radio. But uh, Well, yeah, you know, they, I've always, so one of doing. the things
1: that, you know, I, I understand that um, not everybody has the same experience, as a, an, an adult white female. But shortly after Trump was elected, I mean, I participated in a lot of big protests. There was the Women's March. There was the Science March. And, you know, I've, I've got to tell you, there were thousands of people. And the Chicago police officers um, were so chill and um, you know, I mean, you hear all these things about, um, you know, the cops are all Trumpers and blah da, da da da. And if you know, if they were of the other persuasion, they checked their politics at the door, because as as I said then, and I said it every time, um, that. They didn't make you feel threatened. They made you feel safe. That was exactly when there is a big protest with thousands of people. You don't want to feel threatened by the police who are there. You want to feel that they are keeping you and everybody else safe. And that's exactly how how it felt. Um, uh, Incredible professionalism.
6: Well, it's not only that. It's You know, you go to see a Bulls or a Hawks game or a concert down at the UC, right? Who's outside protecting you? CPD. You go to a concert down at, at Soldier Field to see a Bears game or a fire game or whatever event, a concert down at Soldier Field, or, or you go to the museum campus because you're coming in from the burbs. Who's protecting you in those blue and white cars? The men and women of the Chicago Police Department, right? So, listen, he, um, you know, whatever opinion you have of the Chicago Police Department, whatever the opinion you have of the police in general, right, it doesn't matter to me. You know, we these men and women should be protected. One way to protect them from all the craziness that's going on out there is to make sure they have the proper equipment and have a working and updated bulletproof vest for those men and women who can't afford them. And, yes, they get a... Um, a, a um, a uniform allotment. But you know what? That uniform allotment is taxed. That uniform allotment's got to go to buy their shoes, their trousers, their, bl- their shirts, blouse. If you're a woman, you know, your um, your gun, your, your, your bullets, your hat, your winter gear, your gloves. So it doesn't go a long way. And the suburban departments get the same type of stipend as well, but they are then given replacement bulletproof vests. I mean, give me a break. Okay, so... Um, that's that's where we're at. It's like a construction worker going on their job site and having to bring their own safety harnesses so they don't fall off a building, right? It's it's it's, it's ridiculous. So it's really it's it's pissed me off ever since I found out about it. I've given, uh, I've I've donated tens of thousands of dollars to, to the cause and and buying jerseys that we have signed by professional hockey players. Dan Hampton signed a couple of footballs for us. I'm buddies with Dan. You know, I just I've got all of this. Um, I got some. Sweaters from Eddie Olchek and and uh, um, uh, Dennis Savard and o signed a couple last year. So that's what we're doing, right? You know, mm-hmm. we have a show. We bring awareness. We, we bring police officers and their family on the show to talk about what the Chicago Police Memorial Foundation did for them when their family member was either killed in the line of duty or injured, and the support that the uh, Chicago Police Memorial Foundation provided to them, um, like sending them to... Uh, high school and sending them to college and being there for their prom and buying prom dresses and, and being there for graduation because their dad's not there, walking down the aisle for weddings and escorting them, you know, just making sure they're safe. That, that's all we're doing. So, if if, if your listeners want to help us, and Matt will come on, Alderman O'Shea will come on. I believe he said Thursday to promote it as well. It's uh, CPD, Chicago Police Department. C Chicago, P Police, D Department. best.com dot com. You can go there and donate directly CPD there. Best. and Matt's dot com. C- 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 P- D- vest dot com yeah and then Matt's having a um, uh, on Sunday down at, at one of the four hundred churches in the nineteenth ward they're having a um, a pancake breakfast that I've been to the past three years which is a hoot I mean it's just an absolutely raves tens of thousands of dollars at um, at, at 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 the at the pancake breakfast on Sunday morning
1: um, David by the way um, our CEO Katie Dans, uh texted me. <clears throat> while you were talking and uh wcpt is going to buy uh two vests
6: no oh, that's very kind well thank you very much that's uh thank you that that's awfully kind so we've got another 398 vests to go and um thank you it was katie you said what's her name yeah, katie, katie Danz. hey katie thank you and to all the listen we get 10 people donating 50 dollars we got a vest you know what I mean? So that's if we got a hundred people donating five dollars, we got a vest, and that's just for the patrol vests. Joan, the the tactical vest for the SWAT team, for the high ballistic um, protection that they need. Those are twenty five hundred dollars a pop. Jeez, so. Um, nice. Yeah, so it, it's a lot of money. And you know, these police officers like everybody else, they got families, cars break down, they get sick, so you know, it's not like they're making two, three hundred grand a year. You know, they're out busting their rear ends. And again, it's once a year. We're just trying to bring a little bit of awareness, a little sunshine. Thank you to WCPT for buying two vests. We're we're two down and three hundred and ninety eight to go. So it's a
1: great start. Okay, David, we're gonna take a break. Um I've already got one uh question. That has been uh, texted in for you. <clears throat> we will get to our discussion with David Huckberg right after this.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: I am joined by the lovely and talented David Hochberg. If you would uh, like to ask him a question about credits, enhancing your credit, your credit score, Refinancing, buying a house, any, all of the above, give us a call on our listener line, 773 763 9278. 773 763 9278. David, we got this text. A person texted in that it seems to them that mortgage rates um, are, he said, rates are seemingly higher for longer Is that your perception, too? Can you comment on that?
6: Sure. I could give your uh, listeners a perfect example why. Uh, June of 2022, we saw the rates go from the sixes into the sevens, June, July, uh, uh, that we saw. We saw them take off in January of 22. Uh, They went from threes to fours in a month. They went from fours to five. The following month, April, we were in the sixes. And by the time we got to June, July, we were in the sevens. And we haven't been out of the sevens since then. We actually hit eights um, in October of last year. And we did, I, I correct myself. We did drop down into the sixes at the end of last year, the beginning of this year, and then they shot right back up into the sevens. So the reason that's happening is twofold. Number one, every time we get close to thinking that the – uh, inflation is tamed that's when you start seeing the, the 10-year note come down right the 10-year note was at five and a quarter uh, in october it dropped down to 3.8 in december and then in, at the beginning of january it shot up to like 4.2 it dipped back down when you at say a 10-year january, year note
1: are you talking about a treasury bill
6: yes 10-year okay. treasury note sorry yeah well, so, that's okay i so just don't know these things
1: and must clarify
6: no no That's great. Sorry for getting technical without explaining it. So if your listeners want to watch what the 30-year fixed rate does, follow the the 10-year T-bill, okay? Prior to January 2022, the differential between, or the spread is what we call it in the the industry, the spread between the 30-year fixed and the 10-year T-bill used to be 200 basis points, which means two points. So if the 10-year note was trading at .5, like it was in August of 2020, okay, during the heart of COVID, right? We saw 30-year fixed loans at 2.5 and at 2.625. That was the lowest it was been, right? That, that, that's low. Mm-hmm. Sometime during 2022, these Ghana bankers increased that spread from two points to three points. Okay, so now instead of two points above the 10-year, we're now at three. The bankers. The like they got together
1: that. in a back room smoking cigars?
6: I, I, it's, well, it's it's the banking version of shrinkflation. Okay, so oh. you're paying $2 for a bag of chips, and instead of giving 12, 12 ounces of chips, you're now paying $2 for eight ounces of chips. So, So basically, in the mortgage industry, what we experience, and we're only as good as what the numbers are that are placed in front of us, Right? I mean mortgage professionals like me have got no control over what the banks do w- with the spread. Right? So for the first 21 and a half years I was in the business, okay? the spread between the 10-year T bill and the 30-year fix was always 200 basis points or two points. Okay? Sometime during 2022 till now, the spread is three. And that's when you see when the 10-year dips to 3.8, which we saw about a month ago, the 30-year fix was at 6.8. And then instead of that, where it should have been, 5.8. So the frustrating thing with, with, with guys that, and gals that do what I do is that we have no control over that. And there's such a pent-up demand of everybody to do a cash-out refinance or to refinance out of their 7% loan that they've been in when they bought their home over the past year and a half or year and three quarters. You just can't get to that point where you could cover closing costs, and it doesn't make sense to spend, invest $2,500 in order to save a quarter of a point. It doesn't make sense, unless you've got some jumbo loan of $1 million and above that it makes sense. All right, so, so what's happened, the long answer to the very great question is we are at the mercy of two things. Number one, the inflation numbers so the, the the inflation was going down it was great then the then the numbers came out inflation's up all right or and then the CPI number came out uh consumer price index and the P- PPI number came out Bad, and then the market dropped 500 points, and the 10-year went crazy. And then the rate drops that the everybody was predicting in March now got pushed, pushed back to June, and then it, and then the experts in the in the in the financial field said, well, June might be pushed down later because they got to get inflation under control. Here's the deal: we can't control any of that until people start listeners and the American consumer stop spending money again. I've said this thousands of times stop spending money they don't have on things they don't need okay now i'm not saying not to take care of your family and put on a credit card because you have to feed your family or if there's a, a medical emergency i totally get that but to go get the xbox if you don't need to survive right or to go get that third pair of shoes that you don't need to survive to put it on your credit card that's not helping inflation out and until we stop doing silly things like that and our one point one three billion $1 trillion dollars of credit card debt, we increased our credit card debt as a as a country by fifty billion dollars last quarter. That's not going to curb inflation. okay, so until we stop spending money, we don't have on crap that we don't need, and until the banks shrink their margin back to two hundred basis points from where they jammed it to us on three hundred basis point, which is a shrinkflation that we're experiencing in the mortgage industry, you're not going to see rates come down. I do anticipate rates to come down sometime in the summer towards the fall because there's just so much credit card debt out there and there's so much pain out there. People are running out of oxygen. There's got to be some type of relief out there. But
1: isn't this the time, uh, you know, the post-holidays, isn't this the time, November, December, January, when uh, people run up their credit cards the most because they're – Buying for the holidays and, you know, whether they can afford to pay it off right away or on a payment plan, isn't this sort of the tail end of the time of year when people use their credit cards the most?
6: Well, at the end of the year, they did, and that's why we increased it by $50 billion on credit cards. What we saw, the January retail numbers came out, and they were down, which means retail spending was down in January more than what they expected, which was a good sign, right? So you had the CPI number, which is a future, and PPI number, which is the future um, forecasts of inflation. Those came out higher than expected, and then consumer spending came out the next day, lower than expected. So, I mean, everything is so hypersensitive right now that, what, you know, you get one number one day, the market freaks out to the negative. You get one, uh, you know, a number the next day, and then the market freaks out to the positive. The bottom line is this. We have listeners out there right now, and you know who you are, that do not have the money to make their credit card payments. you have got listeners out there right now that are doing nothing to get themselves into a better position. Okay, I'll give you a perfect example. There was a listener that called me a week ago Tuesday. Okay, he got wiped out during COVID. He was making two hundred grand a year. Wife was a stay-at-home mom. They had a um, a young a a young uh, daughter at home. I think like six, eight years old. Lived in a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar home up in Lincolnshire. Like I said, he was making two hundred grand a year, and he got his job cut. He lost his job during COVID. Okay, so what did he do? He went out and got a job at um, part-time job making 20 $18 an hour doing 20 hours a week so he got insurance for his family tapped out his 401k right taxable income for his retirement account which is not a good thing to do he's in his 50s all right he lived off of that they accumulated over the past 3 years $250,000 with credit card debt Okay, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. He finally his wife went back to work. She's now making, you know, decent six figures. He went back to work. He's back to one hundred thousand with the potential to get bonuses back to where he was. But now he's in a position to refinance that two fifty back into his mortgage and save. I mean, he's going to be saving close to six thousand dollars a month. Okay, this is where we're at as a country. Right. Mm -hmm. He lost his job. OK, here's the problem with the numbers and the numbers are a bunch of crap okay, because he lost his job, but he got a job So on the government records. He 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 got a job. Right. But he got a job at eighteen dollars an hour. He went from 200 grand a year to making eighteen thousand dollars a year. But in the government's record and what they report, unemployment is down because that $18-an-hour that, that job, and there's nothing wrong with the $18-an-hour job. I'm not knocking working a, a, a job like that. I did that you know, all through college and even after college. I'm just making a point that when a, when a 50-year-old guy is above the pay line and the corporate you know, C-suite people are going to start making cuts, being in, your upper 40, being in your 40s, 50s, and 60s above a certain line on the income level, boom, you get cut and 500 of your uh, fellow employees are gone. Okay? Try finding another job. So that guy not only lost a job, he then went out, got a job. It shows up as a job on the statistics, but it doesn't show anywhere where he lost over $180,000 worth of income. So all of these employment numbers, I think, are a bunch of crap. Because you've got listeners right now who are loaded with debt, who have got a full-time job, that are getting a part-time job. That's counted as a job, right, with the employment numbers, right? They don't count that this poor bastard's working two jobs to try to provide for their families, right? Mom and dad are out there, are busting hump because they can't make it on 50, 60 G's a year in the city of Chicago. It's just not happening. Okay, it might sound like a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money. If you're making your $15 an hour because you wanted your $15 an hour, that's great. That's $30,000 a year. Again, I'm not knocking it, but if you own a house with real estate taxes in the city and a mortgage and credit card debt, 30 G's isn't going to cut it. So that's where we're at. That's the truth. I, I, you know, just, I'm just trying to speak truth to truth here, you know, and that's the long answer to that listener's question.
1: OK, well, um, we um, we do have a caller, but we're um, about a minute and a half away from having to break for news. So, Diane, if you can stay, you know what? Let's do this. Uh, if if can you hold off? We'll have we'll put Diane on the air and we'll have her ask her question. And then you can get to the answer when we come back from news. OK, so I yeah, want Mr. Go. Hochberg is going to be very quiet and listen now. OK. Um, Paul, go okay. ahead, put put Diane on the air. Okay. Hey, Diane, you're on with me and David Hochberg.
4: Bidenomics versus Reaganomics, trickle
1: down, trickle up. Biden of the union address when he gave us a budget, and right now we're running on old budget. Um, the House won't pass anything to give Biden credit. Got it? Okay. That's it. All righty. Um, Well, you know, um, we have seen, um, you know, great numbers. Well, you know, David doesn't like the employment numbers because he feels that it isn't really reflective of what's going on in the country. Um, But we are also seeing um, inflation. It's bouncing around some, but overall it's coming down. And Jerome Powell is talking about uh, bringing rates down. And David believes it's going to happen this summer. Um, We are going to... um, Continue on. I've got a couple of more texted questions. David Hochberg and I will be right back after the news.
0: Jonas Posido, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you, Jonas Posido. ready for this on WCPT eight twenty.
1: And I am joined by David Hochberg. Our phone lines are open. You can text me a question, which we've got a couple of those. Um, You can phone in and ask David a question, 773-763-9278, 773-763-9278. David, we have another caller. Ron is calling in from Tinley Park. Uh, Ron, go ahead. Uh, You're on with me and David Hochberg.
4: Yes, uh, just listen to uh, I believe it was a station days ago. One of the buildings downtown sold for went down like from one hundred twenty one million to sixty million just in the last four years. I think the real estate crunch is going to start to hit the city, based upon you know the fact that most people are working from home. It's kind of a function of the COVID and all that. And I don't really see how the city is going to get out of that. You know, we lose the value of a lot of
5: the real estate. Do you think the real estate crunch is going to hit now or?
6: It's already hit. It's already hit. You're talking about 150 North Michigan, which is the corner of, of,
4: um, I believe
6: it's a plant on the roof. Yeah, yeah, it's the the planted building. I think it was a stone container building. What's that?
1: It's the what building?
6: I believe it's a stone container building. It's at the corner of of Michigan and Randolph. It's the building that's got the uh, slope... A uh, roof that is oh, the, that's in all the aerial shots. Whenever uh-huh. there's a football game We're or concert. in that concert movie, and, Adventures and Babysitting, that, that years yeah. ago. Yeah. everyone. <laughs> I remember yeah, from it,
1: that movie. Yes. Yeah, it's in, every,
6: it's, in
3: every, it's in
6: every. Yeah, yeah. In, in 2017, uh, Ron, it sold for 121 million, and it just recently <laughs> sold for 60 million.
5: So wow. you've got a buddy out
4: of that.
6: Well, it, it's going to take leadership, and it's going to take it's going to take vision, and I don't see any any leadership or vision with the leaders we have at the county level and and the and the city level now. Um, well,
1: well, David, you know, what do you think of, of the discussions to take? Because you know, a lot of people believe that in this post pandemic world, when people have realized. Uh, And companies have realized that they can save money on commercial real estate and get just as much work out of people when they work from home. Sure. What do you think about all the different plans that have been put forth? Some people say, you know, that would be a great place uh, to do affordable housing. There's been talk about doing a massive food courts or doing, you know, basically repurposing those buildings into something other than just Big rooms full of cubicles. Um, of all the sure. plans that have been floated, is there one that you think is the most viable?
6: Well, here yeah, I, I haven't seen any any major plan. Um, I, I, will sh- I will I will will say this: if you look at what they did with the Tribune Tower, right? The uh, the Tribune Tower just uh, uh, just north of the river. Um, mm-hmm. It was there forever, right? It's still there. They sold that building five years ago. I believe it was five years ago, and it took it's taken this long to convert it into apartments and condos and commercial on the bottom, right? So that's where the Tribune used to be. WGN Radio was on the first floor. Um, and, you know, it took four or five years to convert that building and tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to convert that building into a condo building, a mixed-use condo building. I mean, it can be done. Right. I, what, what's going to happen is those buildings are going to go for massive discounts. Here's a fifty. Here's an example: fifty percent discount from just six years ago, six seven years ago. Because the investor that's going to be purchasing that property has got to build in taking it offline for a couple, three, four years, and running electrical. You got to run. You got to run all types of utilities because right now those buildings are what. Right. You've got the elevator. Um, uh you uh, down the up up and down the center and then you've got bulk bathrooms right so uh you know maybe one or two offices you've got a private bathroom maybe you've got some kitchenette in there with a with a sink or something you know it's light it's light it's light utilities you start breaking those down into apartments or condos You've got to run utilities to mm-hmm. every single section of that building. so, if you're going do to spend you think two, three, that's four, the kind
1: of, of those are the kinds of expenses that um, that the public sector should help with? Because you know, it's like it's like you know, uh, people are objection objecting to having tax dollars fund a new Bears stadium. I mean, when the when a building like this is finally fully converted. I mean, are the people who who sell it or rent it going to say, "Oh yeah, thanks, City of Chicago, for that money you gave us to make this happen"? Uh, you know, nice to meet you. Um, I mean, is that well, money potentially going to come back somehow?
6: Well, Should you, it? You're sh- either going to have an – well. Here, I'll give. I'll, I'll answer you that. I'll answer that question with this question: Would you rather have an empty, a half-empty office building at 150 North Michigan Avenue, um, with declining tenants? because who needs all of that space? A buddy of mine, Stephen A. Leahy, used to have an office uh, in that building for over 10 years. I mean, I think it was 15 years. COVID hit. He didn't need – he finally realized he didn't have to spend that much money uh, for an office as much as he was spending in that building. He was in that building, okay, for over a decade until he realized he could move to Bannockburn and walk to work across the street from his home across um, Route 22 there, Half Day Road, and uh save about 3 hours transportation time and thousands of dollars in rent. So uh, to answer your question, I'll answer your question with the question. Would you rather have that building empty with no activity in there, would you rather invest in these buildings like the like the Tribune, right? The Tribune uh-huh. building is now a, is now a beautiful building. I mean, they've got the ice cream uh, museum on the bottom. You've got <laughs> Restaurants and coffee shops on the bottom. Well, you know, Mayor Lightfoot,
1: before she uh, left office, was talking about the financial district and how and she had big plans for repurposing, helping to repurpose and revitalize. You know, if you get enough, if you can get enough rental units or condo units in those buildings, then, you know, you're going to get the restaurants and you're going to get the cafes and you're going to get all those businesses that support that. So that's the kind of thing you would like to see continue to move forward.
6: No, that's the type of thing that the city of Chicago and the county of Cook leaders should be forecasting and broadcasting and promoting, which they're not. Okay, and and encouraging developers to come in to invest in the city of Chicago, because guess what just happened? Okay, you've got 150 North Michigan Avenue just lost 50 percent of their value. So, guess what that real estate tax revenue from 150 North Michigan is going to be the next time that property is assessed? It's going to be substantially reduced. Then, every other building within a a mile, two mile radius of the city in the city of Chicago is going to use 150 North Michigan Avenue as a comparable when they go to get their real estate taxes assessed. Just like you would when 123 Maple down the street from you and your single family home was selling for $400,000 and now sold for $300,000. You're going to appeal your real estate taxes. Or if your condo, your two bedroom, two bathroom condo with the parking garage was valued at 400,000 and somebody down the hall sold it for 300,000, same exact unit, same exact view, same exact amenities, you're going to when your taxes are up, you're going to use that as a comp to get your real estate taxes reduced by 25% because you just lost 25% of your value. We've got a major problem Coming our way, and the leadership in the city and at the county level is ridiculous. Right? They're talking well, what, about changing What would you like to see tax. them
1: announce? If if they announced something tomorrow, you'd go, "Yeah, that's what I'm talking about." What? What okay, would you chair, what program? What simple. policy? What?
6: It's very simple. Here's some money for investors that want to come in with the vision to rework downtown Chicago, from, from, from North Michigan Avenue to South Michigan Avenue to, to, to Jewelers Row, all the way out to the financial district to, uh, to the South Loop, all points in between. I'd also like somebody, after 40 years of not talking about it, come out and say what they're going to do with the 25% of the brownfields. The brownfields are those factories that went out of business and now you've got no productivity whatsoever and you have a brownfield, okay, located throughout the entire south side of the city of Chicago. I would like to hear somebody with vision. With the city of Chicago being the, in the mayor's office and the county level being at Tony Preckwinkle's office, talk about what you're going to do to redevelop the 25 percent of Cook County that's earning zero tax revenue right now, sitting as a brownfield as it's been for the past 30 to 40 years.
1: But if, if a policy industry. like that were announced, David, would don't you think people would say, well, yeah, that's a, that sounds real good, but where's that money going to come from? You know, what is it going to come from? Are you going to, you know, um, is it going to come from programs that already exist and you're just going to take money out of their budget? Are you going to raise taxes? I mean, I think what you're saying is a is a terrific idea, but I'm not sure I want to pay extra taxes.
6: Okay, there's a simple answer to that question. Look what Detroit did. Okay, when they when they revitalized downtown Detroit, downtown Detroit was worse than Gary. Okay, or equal to Gary. Okay, Gary's not doing so hot, right? So what do you do? You give those with money and you know who they are. Okay, there are tons of people with money. Say, hey, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna cut you deal on that property, we're gonna give you a tax abatement for the next whatever years in order for you to make your money back. And then they're gonna come in with their private money and they're gonna redo and, and revitalize that property and they're gonna be able to make money down the road. Okay, Why are I'm businesses confused. going to Indiana?
1: Are you saying with it, are you somebody confused? with deep pockets went to the yes. owner of a building that was vacated and said, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy it, I'm gonna make sure you get your money out of the deal, but but I'm gonna develop it. I'm 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 sorry, I got lost there, David.
6: Here, here, here. You've got you've got open, unused areas in the city of Chicago. Okay? Go to Hegwish. Right? Go down the Bishop Ford Expressway from 103rd Street where the Dan Ryan drops into the Bishop Ford with, um, with Harborside International Golf Course, Okay, all the way down to the Indiana line. Look to the left, look to the right with, with all the factories that went out and all the brownfields that are there that have been vacated, vacant for the past 20, 30, 40 years. If you gave that property away to somebody and had them redevelop it, OK, you'd be further ahead because you'd have money be going into the infrastructure. You would have trucks. You would have you have resources. You'd have people working and, and uh, uh, something would go up on that property and you'd be generating tax revenue from that property. OK, with the goods and services coming in and out of that, you probably have to give a substantial discount, but you're getting nothing from that land right now. But then you'll have jobs for those districts and those areas that are begging for jobs. Okay, And then those folks that live in those communities will be able to work within their community to earn a living. And then they'll be able to go back to those communities and invest in those communities and rental properties and buy homes within those communities. And then that's how you revitalize it. Nothing has been done, Jane, since I left the scrap industry in August of 2020. Okay, I left it in August of 2000. I'm sorry, I worked at 127th and Doty, okay, which is right behind the grain elevators off the Bishop Ford. The Ford plant's over there, Tootsie Roll dropped their sugar off over by there, and Harborside International is right down the street. So I'm pretty well-versed in that area, okay, because I used to travel it every single day for five years, okay? Nothing's been done. That's what, instead of just talking and blowing smoke out of your rear ends and trying to reconvert a a real estate tax program to, to, to say you're going after the millionaires, why don't you look at the areas that have been blighted and depleted and haven't been developed in the past 20 to 40 years and do something. Right. Stop your lips from moving and actually do something that you have the power to do. Instead of saying, "Oh, this is you know, we got to tax this, we got to tax that." Why don't you develop some of the undeveloped areas and bring the and bring those areas back up? That's what just frustrates the hell out of me. You've got. Okay, David. I have another question about the
1: commercial real estate downtown. I've been reading a lot in Crane's Chicago mm-hmm. Business that. If the owners of these commercial buildings that are having all these vacancies, if they can't figure out a way forward, um then generally what the owners seem to be doing is they just stop making their payments to the bank. And eventually the bank is the owner of the building when something like that occurs. What do the banks do with these buildings? Do they sell them like they sell debt for pennies on the dollar? And wouldn't that be the kind of thing where a private investor could step in, get a get a building from a bank uh, at a reduced rate and do something with it?
6: Sure, sure. Listen, (laughs) but wouldn't that happen without
1: any city or county or state? Uh, action of all, at all. I mean, if the if the bank has taken a building in in basically in foreclosure and just wants to turn it around, couldn't that happen right now? The way things are in the, with the laws and ordinances we have on the books right now.
6: Absolutely. Here's what's happening right now in the commercial mortgage space. Right. Typically, those loans are good for five years, Joan. Right. You get them for five years. They're five year balloons. Sometimes, if you're lucky, you could get them for 30, but not many commercial mortgages are for 30 years, okay? They're typically five-year balloons. So if you take a look back, when were those loans taken out? In 20 in, in 2020, when the rates were super low, right? So now we're coming due. Uh, five years later, you've got billions of dollars worth of commercial real estate paper coming due. You now have got that paper, the, those mortgages, that investment, is now going to be financed on a decreased value of the building. So those so those building owners that have got that paper, that have the mortgage against their property, right? If you buy, if you bought a a a, a five million dollar building, okay, just use this for an example. You put down a hundred and you put down a million dollars, okay. Mm-hmm. So now you've got a four million dollar property on a building you bought for five million dollars. And the property is now down 50%. You now have a building that's worth $2.5 million. Now you are over leveraged, right? Now you've got $4 million mortgage against a $2.5 million property. That's not a really good spot to be in if you're a bank. So if you want to, and now you got your loan coming due, right? So the banks are doing major workouts with a lot of these building owners, because they don't want to be holding a ton of buildings. Because if these buildings start going bad, then the banks have to come up with money, cash out of their balance sheet to take over these properties. And they don't want to do that and take it for a loss. So so they're doing workouts. Now, there's some times where they're not going to be able to work things out with these Building owners and the, and the building owners are just going to throw in the keys and say, "Hey, have a nice day." You've got 123 uh, North Michigan Avenue. I can't afford to own that anymore. And then you've got a decrease in, in values, and then you know it, it further de- depreciates the market and depresses the market. So we we need a vision of the city of Chicago from the head of the county and the head of the city of Chicago. All I'm saying is, I'm in real estate. I haven't heard any vision from Tony Preckwinkle's office or Mayor Johnson's office as to what's happening, right? I haven't heard it. If I'm wrong, tell me when they've gotten together and done a vision of Chicago, talking about what they're going to do, what their vision is for downtown, you know, from the river all the way, you know, from the river to the river, right, or from the lake to the river. Okay, so you're going to do from Lake Michigan all the way down to the, east br- the the west branch of the Chicago River, right? You know where it splits over there by the mm-hmm. East Bank Club? Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, so you know, it goes down through the financial district all the way down to where they want to build Sox Park and, and, and all the way up to Goose Island. Tell me what you're going to do from, from, the, uh, from, the, from the lake all the way west to the river. Sh- show me a plan you know, show me and everybody else in the real estate market a plan cuz we haven't seen it except to say that you're going to try to change the Chicago transfer tax and call it a millionaires tax which is just a bunch of crap okay without talking about what you're going to do for the city of chicago and what you're going to do for the 25% of the city of chicago that you that's a brownfield that that Rahm Emanuel didn't touch. That Mayor Daley didn't touch. That Lori Lightfoot didn't touch. That Mayor Johnson hasn't touched. Okay, because they're all cowards. Okay, you've got failed leadership going back to Daley to burn. Okay, I'm not just pounding on Johnson. Nobody's done anything. Okay, but in, with those in, you fields. use
1: Detroit as an example, and I. I haven't read anything recently but I did a while back read a lot about the incredible revitalization in Detroit and it seemed to me that it was driven by as you said private people with deep pockets who really cared about Detroit and didn't want to see the city die it would seem that yes. that there should be some of those kind of folks in Chicago do they are they not as civic minded uh, what's no, the difference? Uh, no. Why is it not happening here? I
6: think they're civic-minded, civic okay? I, I think that they, they feel, right, that law and order should be reinstated back in the city of Chicago, okay? And if you talk to all the business owners, they're exhausted from opening up businesses and having people be able to come in and steal up to $1,000 and not be held accountable, okay? I think that's part of the problem. All right and you've got and you've got a chance to vote on that with 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 the professor from the UFC or the judge who who's running for Kim Fox's office all right so i think it starts there and 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 the guys that had big money in the in the in in, in the city in the city of Detroit was Dan Gilbert who owned Rocket Mortgage and the guy that owned the um uh, the pizza place the pizza pizza whatever uh, he's huge um Gosh, gosh, I can't think of his name. He was huge. He owns the um, the, uh, the Detroit Red Wings and the uh, Detroit Tigers, right? So they put a ton of money, and they bought up huge, huge sections of the city of Chicago. Listen, he, you mean uh, Detroit. the city of Detroit. You don't have to go this far. Look what they did in St. Paul, Minnesota. Look up Real Estate Revival in St. Paul, Minnesota, okay? They just did it in the past... 24 to 36 months. What happened? Everybody got in a the room. They put their, checked their egos at the door and said, hey, we've got a housing shortage in the city of St. Paul, Minnesota. Okay? We're going to work together. Union, non-union, teachers, non-teachers, cops, non-cops. We're going to work together to cut through all of the red tape bull things that I can't say. And we're going to do something to generate housing build affordable housing in a in a pace at, at which we can de- develop and supply the market that desperately needs affordable housing. So what did they do? They put their hard hats on, they tied on their steel-toed boots, and they went out there and got it done. Google real estate revival in the city of St. Paul, Minnesota. So, so you're telling me, this, and nothing against the city of St. Paul, Minnesota, and Minnesotans, whatever you're called, right? <laughs> God bless you. Hats off to my friends up north, okay, and my friends in Detroit for figuring it out. Right. They had true leadership and they got something done. The only thing I'm saying is we the leadership in this town and in this county is a joke. OK, because they keep feeding us the same bowl of crap and they want to pass it off as frosted flakes. OK, and I, guess what? I know what frosted flakes are. like I was born with them. I grew up with them. OK, the city has got so much potential and it pisses me off that we got so much potential in this city and it's squandered over political nonsense and somebody wants to own this section of this and have this portion of the cheese okay and prove me i'm wrong prove me i'm wrong okay tell me i'm wrong you've got elected officials who are appealing real estate taxes running the the real estate appeals office what the hell is that Okay, I mean, you've got the the Speaker of the House, Michael Madigan, appealing real estate taxes and Burke. I mean, this has been broken for so long. It's got to be fixed. But we don't have the leaders in this in this city, in the county that have got the stones to fix it. It's ridiculous and it's exhausting and it's sad. It's sad. I don't go down to the city of Chicago anymore unless I'm going to a Bulls or Hawks game or go to do my radio show. Okay, that's it. That's it. It's the only time I come down. My wife and I used to come down two times a year, Joan. Okay, we used to stay at a hotel. We used to get theater tickets. And we used to go out for nice dinners and have a little staycation. I haven't done that in over seven years. Why? 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 I don't feel safe. So I don't go downtown at night. Forget about it. I go to the Hawks game. I go to the Bulls game. And I get the hell out of town. And I'm not the only one in my demographics and my friends up north that live up north that feel the same way. So that's your problem.
1: Well, it just so happens, David, um, my very next guest is uh, Clayton Harris, the third, who is uh, one of the two people you mentioned who's running to replace uh, Kim Fox. And I will uh, talk to him about these issues you've raised and let's see what he has to say okay
6: yeah do me a favor ask him if somebody steals above three hundred dollars worth of merchandise which is the law if they should be prosecuted for theft
1: we or will talk it's
6: going to have an arbitrary number up to a thousand dollars
1: we will talk about shoplifting to- among other things david right, I thank you
6: decaf. I'm, I'm losing my <laughs> yes, mind here. i know
1: you need some decaf um and uh, thanks for answering the uh, listener questions. I appreciate it.
6: Uh, you know, I love you. I'll talk to you later. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Love you, too. Well, thanks for being here. We are going to take a break, and we will ask Clayton Harris the uh one of the two people running to replace Kim Fox, uh, some of these questions and see what he has to say right after this.
0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: I am very pleased to welcome to our program one of the people who is running to be the next Cook County State's Attorney, Clayton Harris the 3rd joins us. Clayton, thank you for being here.
3: Hi Joan, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being on the show.
1: I appreciate you you taking the time to talk with us. Well, uh, my previous guest, uh, David Hochberg, is involved in mortgages and refinances, and he's been talking about what he sees as a uh, a lack of revitalization in the city of Chicago, and also a lack of of. People from the suburbs coming down to enjoy the theater, to enjoy the restaurants, to enjoy uh, the hotels once in a while because of a perceived feeling of not being safe. Um, what, as Cook County State's attorney, uh, Kim Fox has uh, made uh, some much-needed reforms. We've gotten rid of cash bail. But there are people who believe that while, you know, she was a pioneer and she did a lot of things right, that there were certain areas where she was too lenient. And that has led to this feeling of lawlessness. Um, what do you think about what your what what Cook Kim Fox did in this job? And what would you do differently?
4: So,
3: um I think that what we have to look at is that some of the things that Kim Fox has done has been nationally replicated. And we're not going to go backwards from that when we look at the reform, when we look at uh, how justice is administered. What I'm looking to do is to build upon that, to continue with it, but also to make sure that people understand. And we're telling the story about the safety aspect. My My platform is that we can be safe and just at the same time, that it's not an either or proposition, but that it's an and proposition. So I think that what we do now is we address those feelings that David was talking about. Right. The concern that people have. And we address it head on by acknowledging that this fear exists. And then we change the narrative on what's going on. How do you do that, though,
1: Clayton? How how do you do that?
3: I think that that's the, the the question, right? How do we change that narrative? And I think the way that we do that is by hitting people with the facts that are going on, but also with the visual visualization of what's happening as well. You know, when you have and you see a press conference between uh, the mayor, the superintendent and the state's attorney saying, hey, we had, you know, activities that happened this past weekend by the mayor. We're not going to tolerate that. The superintendent gets up and says, yeah, we identified let's just say 30 individuals, we're able to apprehend 25 of them. And then the state's attorney says, and we're moving forward with appropriate charges on those uh, uh, on 19 of the 25 people that we're holding everyone accountable, but we're holding them accountable appropriately. And I think that's what people want to know is that people are being held accountable for their actions.
1: Well, one of the things that David mentioned, and I'm repeating it, not just because he said it, but it's it's become a big talking point. This idea of not prosecuting shoplifters unless the amount taken is a thousand dollars or or more that uh, that one policy has a lot of people really, really up in arms. Would you continue that? The the law says that anybody who uh shoplifts I believe it's three hundred dollars or more can be charged with a felony. Kim Fox said that she thought that was that was way too low a number and that her office wasn't gonna pursue any charges unless the amount was a thousand dollars or more. And um, you know, then people are tying that policy together with a lot of the Problems we've had of um, groups going into stores, driving cars through store windows and and descending upon the store, everybody grabbing as much as they can uh, to get out. Whether or not it is fair, people are putting those two things together. What what do you feel about the the shoplifting policy? What would your office set as the mark?
3: So my office will set as the mark that the threshold for a felony will be $1,000. That does not mean that we're not holding everyone accountable below $1,000. This is what I'm talking about when I talk about perception and the narrative. We will make sure that people know that we can uh, charge people below $1,000 with a misdemeanor. They're still being held accountable, just not putting a felony on their record below $1,000. But what I like to tell people, too, is that that discussion is just it's 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 too broad of a discussion. So when you talk about three hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, if someone just takes my phone off the table, as I sat it down. The question is, do I think that someone stealing my phone uh, that costs more than three hundred dollars uh, as a felony that's on the record for the rest of their life? The answer is no, I do not. Now, if someone comes and breaks into my house and takes my phone, it doesn't matter whether that phone is a thousand dollars, three hundred dollars, or four dollars, because we can charge them with a burglary. That's what I'm talking about. If someone takes the phone off my person, that's an assault, and we can charge them with a robbery. So when people do or talk okay, about okay, but just let's 1, 000- just go
1: back to pure shoplifting. Um, Correct. That's. A misdemeanor means very little, usually no jail time. I mean, it's people are looking at a misdemeanor charge almost as a get out of jail free card. I mean, couldn't there be a compromise if you think 300 is too low, but obviously the community at large seems to be reacting poorly to the limit of a thousand? How about 500? How about 600? How about something that still feels fair? but makes people feel like like there is going to be um, a standard enforced that makes them feel safer.
3: We are uh, a blue state in a sea of red states all around us, and our level for the felony threshold is lower than all of them. In Indiana, it's above a thousand; it's uh, I think it's eleven 1, hundred or whatnot. Uh, when you look at all the states around us, ours is the lowest threshold. Even Texas is at twenty-seven fifty. So I think the thousand dollars is uh, the compromise, to be honest with you, and it's the right area. But to go back, a misdemeanor does have teeth on it, and you can go to jail for. Three hundred and sixty four days. The difference between a misdemeanor and a felony charge is one day on that, uh, especially when we talk about that. So I, I, I disagree that um, a misdemeanor is a get out of jail. But uh, nobody, free card nobody at
1: all. goes to jail for that amount of money, for that amount of time, rather, on a misdemeanor charge. I mean, the reality is that it it just doesn't work out that way. Um, and let's go back to something you said earlier. You said that you wanted to build upon what was already there. So what does that look like? I assume that means that there's a policy or, or there's some idea that you want to bring to the table that expands on something already there or maybe takes the state's attorney's office in a new direction. When you say build, what is it you want to build out?
3: Sure. One last thing. I, I'm a former assistant state attorney. I went through narcotics and special prosecutions narcotics, and people went to jail every day for misdemeanor uh, crimes, and, and they went to jail for significant time, not the full year. I mean, that's why you were charged with that. But to your point now or to the question now about building upon what's going on, so we talked about the restorative and reformative justice, um, the things that have been nationally replicated. We continue to move forward there. When I talk about building on, on that side of it, on the justice side, versus the safety side, we're talking about ensuring that the office is uh, efficient. We might consolidate a couple of the units so that there is not as much time slowed or any time slowed down when we're looking at exonerations. On the safety side, what we look at is addressing head-on uh, the organized crime that is creating and causing the retail theft that people are talking about, that are cre- that is creating and causing the carjackings and the uh, the perpetuation of gun crimes. And what we do there is we add. Add in a new division in special prosecutions that deals with organized crime. So a lot of times what people are seeing are the issues when you see the individuals that are doing these smash and grabs. When they do a smash or a crash and grab and they go into a store and they're not just taking everything at the front door, then it's more than a crime of opportunity. When people go in and they're taking... Five Fendi bags, 10 Gucci bags, and seven whatever, they are being sent in there. What 11-year-old do you know that knows what to do with a catalytic converter? When these things are going on, they are organized crime, and what we have to do is take out the organization of what's going on, and that's what we'll focus with by adding uh, assistant state attorneys that focus on organized crime 24-7. That's what I did when I was in special prosecutions narcotics. That's what we'll do uh, as it comes to organized crime. Mm.
1: I'm talking to Clayton Harris the 3rd. He is going to be on your March 19th primary ballot as the Democratic candidate for Cook County State's Attorney. Kim Fox is not seeking re-election. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this.
0: Jonas Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: Clayton Harris III is going to be on your March 19th primary ballot. He is running to be the next Cook County State's Attorney. Uh, Clayton, you touched a little bit about uh, on your background. Uh, tell us more about the different jobs you've had.
3: Uh, thanks, Joan. I am um, an aerospace technologist. I was a rocket scientist, worked at the Pentagon, went to law school. Uh, I was a former assistant state attorney here under Dick Devine, where I did a uh, Criminal, criminal appeals, traffic, jumped over to narcotics and special prosecutions, narcotics. Assistant to Mayor daily. I worked on the crime legislation back and forth in Springfield. Uh, counsel at Dot. chief of staff at IDOT, deputy chief of staff in the governor's office over all of infrastructure for Illinois. Uh, chief of staff to the governor um, after crisis. And then I was government affairs for a global engineer design build firm. Uh, Executive director at the Illinois International Port District, and I've been a professor at the, Uni- uh, at the uh, University of Chicago for the last 14, 15 years. I'm a husband, so, and I have two wonderful little boys too.
1: <laughs> so there's you. You really don't have you don't have any kind of depth to this resume. You've you've just done nothing. <laughs> I, I I I you know I thought I was. Uh, You know, I've talked to a lot of people who've done a lot of things. Very few people can come up with a resume resume like like that, Clayton. Uh, It is, to say the least, impressive. Um, Some people are looking at this uh, primary contest between uh, you and uh, O'Neill Burke uh, as somehow uh, a progressive attitude versus. I don't know how we would describe Eileen, um, moderate conservative view toward the job. Do you see the contest that way? Is that a fair way to look at it?
3: I think that the way that I see this truly is whether we continue to move forward in this office or whether we continue or whether we take a step backwards. So um, I absolutely think that When we talk about the way that we move forward with justice, safety and justice right there, that there are some goals that I am absolutely in favor of, that I teach, that I believe in, that I don't think that my um, that my uh, opponent does. So give me an example, um, if you would. So um, her background has, you know, the prosecution of the 10 year old kid, the wrongful prosecution of a 10 year old child for murder. Uh, where there was very very uh, um explicit evidence that showed that this kid could not have done it, it was ignored and went forth. So people have asked me, why do I, why am I bringing up something that happened 30 years ago, you know, and that's not fair, and I remind people that there are people that have been sitting in prison for crimes they didn't commit for longer than 30 years, and it's very relevant. But the other part of it, and this is, I think, to the point of your question, is that there's not even been an acknowledgement of the issues that led to that conviction. Anything else that's happened since then, and it's been a doubling down down. so there's no acknowledgement that there was a mistake or that the system was incorrect that allowed a ten year old to be wrongly well, convicted well, i'm, I'm not
1: you. i'm not i'm sure as um aware of all the details of that case as you are but from just from what i've read in the papers i believe the prosecution um was built um I, it was around a confession that was later found to be bad or some other piece of evidence, because I believe that it was looked at, and uh, there were no, there was no prosecutorial malfeasance of, of any kind that was found to be Eileen O'Neill Burke's fault in that in that case. Just you know, just to be just to be clear about what I know, uh, just from reading the newspapers. I-
3: She says every time that no court ever found that she did anything wrong, and that is uh, what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter whether a court said that you did something wrong when the evidence showed that this 10-year-old, 88-pound child with no blood evidence whatsoever on their person— Yes, uh, uh, confessed to a crime, but the confession didn't match the fact of the, the case in the police report. And a 10-year-old confessing to a crime uh, because they want to get to their brother's or their friend's birthday party, uh, I, I, I think anybody would see that and a uh, ten year old. I am a military brat. My dad was an officer in the United States Army. I was raised with discipline and respect for authority. It's the same way I'm raising my two little boys. And maybe it's so personal to me because my boys are nine and eleven. So this ten year old would be right in the center and, and and the physical capabilities of that child at that time are what I have in my house at this time. And it just defies logic. It Mm defies logic that this could have occurred. And that's where I want to be as the state's attorney. And this is where I think there's a difference, where I empower my assistant state's attorneys to push back, to make sure that we're holding the police accountable for their actions. I did it when I was a young state's attorney. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do unless you have backup from your supervisors or the state's attorney. So my assistants will know that they can do that. And just because you ask an officer more questions doesn't mean you don't believe them. And it doesn't mean you're not going to move forward with this case. What it means is that there needs to be an explanation on why we're where we are and how we got there. And in this case particularly, there weren't explanations and there wasn't another question asked on how it would be possible for this to happen, and then when you look, and this looks okay. well, at I, the Okay, I
1: get, I get, I get where you're coming from here, but in in the 30 years since this, I'm guessing that you have made yourself familiar with um, with Eileen's uh, rulings and and her work. Um, tell me something more recent um, that uh, differentiates the two of you.
3: I think uh that it was noted in one of the more recent cases that her 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 outlook on these cases are one that is extreme. She has extreme outlooks on a lot of the cases uh, that she's ruled on It's my understanding too that she's never ruled against the uh prosecution uh, in any of her rulings and and I, I find that uh interesting as as a judge uh, correct uh so that's that's uh very Interesting to me. I guess what I would point to also is that um, having given, you know, a a recitation of my um, resume as well, I think that I'm multidimensional with the legal aspect and then the leadership and the management. And I think that. For the next state's attorney coming in here, I think that that is absolutely necessary. We need someone who can do more than just one thing. We need someone who's led a large organization successfully. We need someone who can uh, uh, go and bring resources back to the office to ensure that the assistant state's attorneys have everything that they need so that they can be successful in trying cases, um, you know, and making sure that we are always looked at as the victim's advocate here in Cook County.
1: Because there is this feeling that somehow things are um, out of control in a a way that they weren't in years past, um, and people are very concerned by that. Um, When you guys had a debate, um, Eileen O'Neill-Burke said to the audience that if you think, um, if you are satisfied with with the way things are going, if you don't see a need for change, I'm not the person to vote for. What do you think she meant by that?
3: Oh, it's very clear what she meant. It's it's fear mongering. She's just like, you know, if you're scared, then uh, don't vote for uh, me. Vote for her. Um, And and I'm not fear mongering here. I'm I'm not going to do that. You don't have to be scared to vote one way or the other. All you have to do is be concerned about safety and justice. That's why you should vote for me. You should vote for me because what's your tagline here? Facts matter. You should vote for me because I will talk about the facts and we'll talk about what's going on and then how we can address them. That's why it's an individual. So it's fear-mongering and pandering. You know, she'll say or has said the things that people want to hear, but not necessarily what she's going to do. I have said what I'm going to do And and I've made it clear, and this is regardless of whether people think it's absolutely the right thing to do or not, this is well-based in law, it's well-based in uh, teaching, and it's well-based in my time and experience um, as a manager and a leader of large offices. Would you call
1: yourself a progressive?
3: Um, I guess the question, if you mean progressive, the way I understand progressive is to mean more I don't even know effect.
1: if I know what progressive means, honestly. Right. <laughs> everybody uses the word. Everybody bandies it about. Um, we're going to have to come up with a, uh, with a different way. Um, would you say that you are, well, let's just do a comparison, that you are um, less, um, that Eileen, Eileen is more conservative than you are?
3: Um, You know, I I think that's really for the the voters to to uh, decide what I'm I'm telling everyone is the way I understand progressive, it means to utilize the law with more accurate, effective and strategic uh, as well as fair and focused prosecutions. Um, and, and, and I think that that's where I fall. I'm the one uh, that I believe is committed to that while committing to prevent crime by meaningfully intervening and investing in people uh, at the same time.
1: Well, uh, do you have any public appearances scheduled or any more debates scheduled that people um, people I- could come and hear you
3: and see you? Right. I don't know about any other debate. Um, I hope so. And I do know that we have a few more forums coming up uh, pretty soon. Uh, when and where, I'm not 100 percent sure, but uh, I know my calendars, uh, my calendar is filled between now and March 19th, uh, uh, Election Day.
1: Uh, do you have a political website where if people wanted to uh, come out and meet you or hear you, they could find those uh, those events?
3: Absolutely. Thank you for that. I'm at dot ClaytonHarrisforcook.com.
1: Well, um, Mr. Harris, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, appreciate the conversation. And I know how busy you are. Thanks for uh, spending time with us.
3: And I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much.
1: And again, uh, remember, March 19th is when you will be voting uh, in Cook County. Um, So make a note of that date and educate yourself as that election gets closer and closer. That's going to do it for me today. Uh, Driving at home with Patty Vasquez is up next. Richard Chu is going to be here tomorrow at 6 a.m. Um, he's been having some really interesting conversations with listeners. He uh, he has a lot to say, and it is always worth hearing. I'll see you tomorrow at uh, 2 o'clock. Until then, have a great evening. Stay safe, my friends, and good night.